0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه مباركا عليه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى جل جلاله وعمن والاه والسلام على سيد الحبيب المصطفى صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا الى يوم الدين اما بعد there's a history to this book which if we understand it, insha'Allah, that will help us to understand the significance of this work, especially in the English language. It starts off uh, in the 13th century. So we're we're speaking about 13th century Gregorian. That would mean about 700 years ago. In Alexandria, there was a person whose name was Ahmed ibn Muhammad ibn Ata'illah al-Iskandari. Ahmed. Ibn Muhammad, Ibn Ata'illah Al-Iskandari. Now one thing that you'll find very interesting is that his name is Ahmed and his father's name is Muhammad. And that is by no way a misnomer. You have, If you look at many of the famous scholars, you'll find that their names were Muhammad or Ahmed. It was such a popular name and today, mashallah, it's still a popular name. So his name is Ahmed, his father's name is Muhammad, Ibn Ata'illah, which is what he's more famously known as Ibn Ata'illah. Ata, Ata means the gift of Allah, Ata'illah, the son of the gift of Allah. Ibn Ata'illah, Al-Iskandari. Al-Iskandari because he is from Alexandria. Alexandria is Iskandaria. Alexandria is a very beautiful city, northern tip of Egypt on the Mediterranean. has a beautiful Corniche, it's a kind of an elongated city but lengthwise right across, across the Corniche and it's kind of a very interesting city. And on the one edge of it, there's a cluster of uh, several masajid. There's a cluster actually of several masajid. Of one of those masjid, it's the Mursi complex. It's called the Mursi complex. And Abu al-Abbas al-Mursi, rahimahullah, was the sheikh of Ibn Ataila al-Iskandari. So Ibn Ataila al-Iskandari is born in Alexandria, middle of the 13th century. This was the time in Egypt this was the time in Egypt uh, of high impressive artistic and architectural development. That was the time that was one of the high peaks of the Islamic civilization, especially in Egypt, because you had the Mamluk. This was Mamluk Egypt. The Mamluks were ruling Egypt. And subhanAllah, even if you go today to Egypt and you go behind Jamil Azhar and you go behind Jamil Hussein on the opposite side, you'll actually come across numerous complexes that are very old, seven, 800 years old, and they are quite amazing. And uh, Cairo, uh, uh, Cairo is a very interesting place for that because it has about 10 different dynasties all the way from uh, the Pharaonic the, the, the Fir- the uh, remnants to the Mamluks uh, to um, uh, the Fatimids, uh, uh, Muhammad Ali Basha, uh, Uthmanis. And uh, the Tulunids, Amr ibn Asa, the Allahumma's masjid, so you've got numerous dynasties, it's a quite an amazing city, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring some stability and noor and iman into the area. So, Egypt in general was enjoying a height of artistic expression, both in poetry and in architecture, and also in beautiful writing. So you can see it's a time when, when people who have artistic talent are able to then really contribute uh, today, unfortunately, we're in a time where it's kind of a defensive mode because we're constantly being attacked, we're constantly having to be res- uh, to respond as opposed to actually contribute and produce. And people are asking, why aren't Muslims producing anything today? Right? But may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us that glorious time again. He eventually he moved down to Alexandria and he died in Alexandria in 709 Hijri, which is, uh, uh, for, uh, I mean, right now we're, we're in the 1400s, so we're talking about exactly halfway between us and Rasulullah sallallahu time, approximately 700 years ago, which is 1309. He's buried in Qarafa, which is in Cairo. He's buried there. He's a Maliki scholar, so he was a Maliki faqih, and he taught at, uh, in Cairo at the Azhar University. And around 674, which is equal to 1276, that's when he became a spiritual disciple of Abu'l abbas al-Mursi, this great... Uh, Sufi scholar, uh, who's in Alexandria, who is actually the disciple, who himself is the disciple of Abu'l-Hassan al-Shadhili. So these are, this is the line of Shadhili scholars. And subhanallah, the, the Shadhili's classically have produced some of the greatest works that we know of today. So one is the Hikam of Ibn Ataillah, Qasida Burda of, uh, uh, of Busiri, he's a Shadhili as well. The Dalailul Khairat of Jazuli, that's a Shafi'i work. And you have a number of other great pieces of work that the Shadilis have, mashallah, bequeathed to the ummah. And today we're enjoying those works. And they've uh, basically stood the test of time and they're being celebrated generation after generation. So he was established by Abu abbas al-Mursi as a sheikh in his own right. So he received khilafah or the khirkah as they call it before uh, Abu abbas al-Mursi passed away. This was about 12 years after their first meeting. So he, uh, in 12 years uh, he, he, got, he received discipleship or you can say khilafah rather. Now... Sheikh Zakaria Khandelwi, who's got a really long introduction to its commentary that we're speaking about today, right? Um, this, this work today is actually a commentary of Ibn Ata'illah's original hikam, which are very short sayings. They're very short uh, statements of wisdom. So, Sheikh Zakaria, he writes that when Ibn Ata'illah took, this, took his work to his sheikh and showed it to him. Now, remember, this is a student going to his sheikh and saying, This is what I've written. The sheikh is supposed to be a greater master in the path of tasawwuf. But this is what his sheikh said. He said, My son, in this treatise, you have discharged the aims of all friends and even more. By the friends, what he's speaking about, the ahbab, he's speaking about the men of Allah, the people of the path, the Sufis. Uh, the awliya, that their secrets, you have, you have gathered all of them here. In fact, you've surpassed and gone beyond that. And subhanAllah, if you look at this work today, it's amazing at different levels. I'll see how much uh, we can cover of that uh, a bit later on. This book was then accepted pretty much by the elite and, and others, and numerous commentaries. Now, if you look in history... To tell how great a book is, generally you look at what kind of work has then been done on that, on that book. Numerous commentaries were written by some of the really famous scholars. Uh, so, for example, Sheikh Ahmed Zarruq, who's considered one of the great awliya Allah, some beautiful works and writings that he has, he wrote three commentaries. Ibn Ajiba wrote another great commentary on, on the Hikam. Besides this, there's Ibn Abad al Rundi's commentary. Al Rundi, he was an Andalusian scholar. Ronda is in Andalusia it's just uh, to the uh, it's just to the west of Granada and Cordoba uh, south of Cordoba above Malaga and Mabea that's where Ronda is today it's a kind of a hill town of course uh, doesn't have the former glory that it had in those days but it had some great scholars that came out of Ronda in southern Spain and they're called Rundi so Abu uh, Ibn Abbad al rundi he wrote one of the great commentaries personally i believe that this commentary here Uh, 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 the the author definitely took from Ibn uh, Ibn Abad al-Rundi's work uh, from from my comparison in a few places. A number of other commentaries were written. And Ibn Atayillah, in those days, they used to do a lot of dictation as opposed to writing something directly sometimes. So Ibn illa he dictated this work to one of the great scholars of Shafi'i Fiqh. Uh, if you if you know the great scholars of Shafi'i Fiqh, uh, you have Taqiyuddin Sub- Subki, Ta- Taqiyuddin Subki, who died in 756 uh, Hijri. He's a distinguished Shafi'i biographer, historian, and a Shafi'i jurist. So Ibn Ata'illah, he dictated this work directly to this particular great scholar. The later Shadili master, uh, which I spoke about earlier, Sheikh Ahmed Zarruk. Sheikh Ahmed Zarruk, he received... Five of the different works of Ibn Ata'illah through another famous Shafi'i historian and a Hadith scholar, Hadith master. And I'm sure many of the ulama uh, will, will recognize his name, none other than Shamsuddin al Sahawi, who died in 902 Hijri, 1497. The success of this work is actually the captivating language of the author, the way he makes his point. And I will provide you a few examples, inshallah. The way he makes his point. You know that he knows what he's speaking about, his experience comes through, and then his beautiful way and efficient way, effective way, eloquent way of putting this together and to make it so convincing. So they're very short phrases, but when you hear them, they actually stay in your mind because they just have such an appeal to the heart. So... A very interesting story is actually related about the acceptance of this individual. Many of the ulama and others would have heard about a great Hanafi, uh, Hanafi jurist of Alexandria and Egypt in particular. Uh, Hanafis earlier on in Egypt were anomalies. Egypt was classically a Shafi'i, Shafi'i country, a Shafi'i area. Imam Tahawi was an anomaly there because he became a Hanafi after having been Shafi'i, even though his mother was a student of Imam Shafi'i and so was his uncle. So it's kind of a very interesting, and another one, a bit later on, the most fa- one of the most famous scholars to come after Imam Tahawi in terms of being Hanafi from Egypt is none other than Kamal ibn al-Humam, a commentator of the great book of uh, jurisprudence, the Hidayah of Mar'ginani. Many of you may have heard about that. So. Uh, Ibn al Humam, he was in Alexandria, he visited the, sorry, he was in Cairo and he visited the graveyard in which uh, Ibn Ata'illah al Iskandari is buried. So as he's going past his grave, he was reciting Surah Hud from the Quran and he reached the verse, As he read this verse, so he's reading, as he's going through, he's reading, and when he got to the grave, that's what he recited. This was the verse, which is that the day when no nafs, no body, no person, no soul will be able to speak, except with leave from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, And among them will be the unfortunate ones, uh, the wretched ones, and also the fortunate ones. So among them will be those who've had success, and there'll be those who haven't had success. As soon as he read that verse, he heard Ibn Ata'illah's voice coming from the grave. And this is in his biographies. He heard, he says, "O Kamal, this is what he heard. O Kamal, among us are no unfortunate ones. Among us are no unfortunate ones. So in this graveyard, in this area, there are no unfortunate ones. So then Ibn, uh, Ibn al-Humam, at his, uh, before his death, he instructed that he should be buried in that graveyard. I mean, I wouldn't mind being buried there either. Subhanallah. Because if you have something of that nature, that's quite amazing. What happens then later on, because we only have a short time, I want to go through the history of this book quickly, because this particular edition, it has at least four or five different scholars who've contributed to this uh, particular piece of work. So Ibn Atayillah is who writes about 260-something aphorisms. It's 260 statements, aphorisms, wisdoms. Now, a bit later, some hundred years later on, in about 900s, You have another scholar in the Indian subcontinent who later moved to Makkah Mukarramah. His name was Sheikh Ali Al-Muttaqi, 16th century. He is the great author of the Kanzul Ummal, the great hadith encyclopedic collection. He decided... And he, although he was from the Chishti school before, but he became a Naqsh, uh, he became Shadhili afterwards, he took the Shadhili tariqah when he went to the Haramain. What he did was, he found the great benefit of this work of Ibn Ata'illah. But what he noticed was, that if you read the original uh, Hikam, in their original order, we don't generally see a cohesive uh, order in terms of progression or movement. Although the Shadilis would argue, and I've had this discussion with one of the Shadilis after I showed him this work, he said, well, that's, th- that is the secret way that they will take somebody and advance them in the path of Tasawwuf, uh, through the way Ibn Ata'illah has, has uh, ordered his hikam. However, Sheikh Ali Al-Muttaqi decided that to make it more useful, let's take all of the hikam, subject-wise, categorize them under different topics. So he, had, he, he, uh, he organized it under 30 different chapters on sincerity, on prayer, on poverty, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, on, on asceticism So all of those that were everything related to salat He would put under one chapter Everything related to poverty under another chapter Everything related to ostentation uh, Showing off under another chapter What that does now Is that it makes it very easy for a person to read All the wisdoms that relate to that particular topic Together So this took place around the 16th century So that's, uh, that's uh, About 400 years ago Then what happens is Let's, let's move on now uh, to uh, India about a hundred years ago so we have a, a particular individual who's extremely famous because he although he was not a full-fledged official formal scholar he becomes you can say the the, the, the spiritual master the spiritual guide of some of the greatest of the scholars of the time on, uh, during that particular decade or those decades And this is none other than a a person from Tanabawan, whose name was Haji Imdadullah. Haji Imdadullah. He instructed. He instructed one of his students, Maulana Khalil Ahmad Saharanpuri, who died in uh, 1927, which is 1346 Hijri. He told him that you take this Sheikh Ali Al Muttaqi's work. He saw the benefit of it, and he said, "I want you to translate this into Urdu." So. Uh, Sheikh Ali Al-Muttaq, uh, Shaykh uh, uh, Mawlana Khalil Ahmad Saharanpuri, based on this instruction from his Sheikh, although, although he received his Khilafah later from Mawlana Rashid Ahmad Gangohi, uh, though he started off with uh, Haji Dadullah uh, uh, initially, he translated it and he called it, Itmamun Ni'am. Itmamun Ni'am. So you have the Hikam, then you have Ali Al-Muttaqi's ordering, chapterization, which, was, which is called... The tabweeb hikam An-nahjul atam fi, uh, fi tabweeb hikam So, an-nahjul atam. You have the hikam, then you have an-nahjul atam, then you have the Urdu translation of that, of that chapterized order, which is called itmamun ni'am. Now, it's in Urdu, and believe me, if you pick up this book, whether in English or whether in Urdu, and you try, or in Arabic for that matter, and you read it, it is of a very high level. Some of them are dealing on a very high level. So what I mean by that is what Mawlana Khalil Ahmad Saharampuri then he saw that people were finding it hard to understand the beauty of this work because of the high level aim of the author. He told his student and this is where Sheikh Abdullah Gangohi comes in. Sheikh Abdullah Gangohi relatively unknown. Relatively unknown. He was a student of Maulana Zakaria, Sheikh Zakaria, his father, Maulana Yahya. Maulana Yahya took him under special instruction, Sheikh Abdullah Gangohi. And people would know from uh, reading the RBT of Sheikh Zakaria that he, his father was extremely. Academic in his approach, very pedantic, very particular, and he used to really make you study well. And you know, people would know that from Sheikh Zakaria. So, Sheikh Abdullah Gangohi was one of his students of that nature. Later on, Maulana Ashraf Ali Thanwi, none other than Hakimul Ummah, needed a teacher in tanabawan for his madrasa. So, he asked Maulana Yahya, Can you send me somebody that you think is competent to teach here? He sent him Sheikh Abdullah Gangohi. So Sheikh Abdullah Gangohi there uh, went there, and Subhanallah, he did a wonderful job. Later, he moved to Saharanpur and became a teacher in the world-famous Madahir Ulum, the second madrasa in the subcontinent uh, after after Darul So he became a teacher there, and he also became a disciple of Maulana Khalil Ahmad Saharanpuri. Mawlana Khalil Ahmad Saharanpuri is the one who translated the Hikam, Itma'amun Niam. He told his students that look, people are finding. It's hard to understand this. Can you write a commentary on it? He must have had great confidence in his student to have told him to write this because, believe me, when I read a few of the more advanced ones in advanced hikam in here, they are extremely advanced. You have to be on an advanced level of spirituality to be able to grasp those particular ones. So he must have had a lot of confidence in Sheikh Abdullah Gangohi to have told him to write the commentary. Sheikh Abdullah Gangohi wrote the commentary and he called it ikmal shiam so you have this now series of names you have the hikam of ibn Atailah that it starts with you have ali al-muttaqi who brings it together and chapterizes them under the subjects which is called an nahjul atam you then have a translation in urdu uh, which is called itmam uh, niam and then after that you have a commentary in urdu called ikmal shiam so that's how this uh, this this work started now it's a uh, my, my interaction with this book, because this is probably one of the greatest books that we've probably worked on, in terms of the nature of the work. I mean, there's Ghazali's Bidayatul Hidayah, which is at a very similar level, but this one is quite amazing. It's more popular than even Ghazali's Bidayatul Hidayah. Uh, my history with this book was that when I was studying in Dharlum Berry, I was uh, once moved into this particular room, uh, which was uh, the, the room in which the phone used to be. So, after the office closed in those days, after the main office of the madrasa closed, all phones would be diverted to this room and we had to man this phone. And it was a big responsibility. And I was it was a two person room and I was moved in with Maulana Zakaria, who's now in Maulana Zakaria Patel, who's actually in Canada right now. He's a relative of mine as well. He was much more advanced than me, both in studies and, and in everything else. And uh, our principal, Hazrat Maulana Yusuf Sab, he uh, was the one who put him there and then he. Told me to go and stay in that room as well. Now what was very, very interesting about the room, aside from the responsibility of the telephone, was that it had a a library in there. A small, a smallish kind of library, which was Hazrat Mana Yusuf mutala's personal library. This was his library because that area of the Madrasa, those few rooms, used to be his house right in the beginning. That's where he used to reside. So even though he'd moved out later, that the his he'd kept the library there. So we had to look after his books. And Mawlana Yusuf used to keep telling, Mawlana Yusuf uh, used to keep telling uh, Mawlana Zakaria uh, about certain books. And I used to, at that time I was kind of just starting off, learning Urdu, etc. I probably finished Hibs class, and I think I was starting in the Alim class. I used to look at these books and say, one day I'm going to read these books. You know, because they're right next to your bed. You know, they, they, they they'd probably topple and uh, submerge you if that ever happened. Alhamdulillah, it didn't. But... It was kind of interesting, but there were two books in there that were really, uh, you can say, special. Because Maulana Zakaria was told to read them. He was on an advanced level, so he was told to read them by uh, Hazrat Mona Yusuf Sub, which was Irshadul Muluk, Irshadul Muluk, and Ikmalus Shi'ah. is this work, and Irshadul Muluk is its uh, is its uh, partner work. These two are considered to be two of the high-level books in the later Chishti tariqah of the subcontinent. So, these are, if, if you become high in the Chishti tariqah, uh, when I mean high, I mean high, I don't mean that high, right? This is the real high. Anyway, so, you you would have to read these two books to really understand the advanced levels of the path. Now, if some of this is... Going over your head don 't worry about it it is it is a very it is a very specialized topic, but i 'm trying to make it as simple uh, for you as possible so th- those were the two books and so it stuck in my mind that those were very important books later on, I was in America and I got news from a one of the brothers that I knew in in, in England that he is working on producing a modern Edited translation of this work. So it was this company that was set up in Bradford uh, called Sage Trail Press. And although this book had been translated in South Africa many, many years ago by the Majlisul ulama, the translation wasn't all that great. It was decent, but for the modern world it needed to be really advanced. Something that would befit the quality and the content of the work itself. So they decided to. Uh, to to uh, have it edited and produce a really high-level edited edition So they found, th- they found the translation One of the best translations that have been produced of the Hikam in English Is by Victor Dana Victor Dana, his translation, if I read it out to you It's absolutely beautiful He's, ca- he's matched, he's tried to match in English Eloquence and effectiveness The same as Ibn Atayillah has done in Arabic So it's very effective And you see a massive difference between this and any other edition. Now the commentary had to be edited. So they found an individual up north who's in Bradford today, Andrew Buso, Ibrahim Andrew Ibrahim Buso, who mashallah did such a great editing work of the commentary that he matched Victor Dana's translation in the actual wisdoms. He matched that English, that level on that height of language in the commentary. So the commentary he produced at a very edited to a very high level. The commentary is really needed to understand this. So they worked on this for a year or two years or something. And then I got the sad, I received the sad news that they have decided to stop working on it for whatever reason. They did a lot of the work, maybe 80%, 90% of the work. And then they said, that's it, we're not going to do this book anymore. And my heart just fell. I said, no, this book needs to come out. So I said, let me buy this project of you. So whatever they'd spent, etc., their cost, etc., he purchased it, took it on the White Thread Press, but then it took us about seven to nine years to finally produce this book after huge, rigorous editing and revision process and to really get it up to the way that it should do in terms of its design, the choice of uh, cover, color, uh, paper, you know, and, and so on, because we really wanted this to be One of the masterpieces because it's such a great work and it can inshallah benefit so many so many people but it took us about eight to nine years to do this finally came out this last ramadan Uh, in 2014 you know this it's taken a very very uh, very very long time now he's obviously writing this unapologetically for the people of the path in that time sufism was not a problem Today, people are scared about Sufism. There's a, there's, a public, there's a bookseller in America who said to me, he said, don't put Sufi in your name because you know, the Torah has published uh, Sufi Studies of Hadith, Mawlana Ashwari Tanwi's book. Some of you may be aware of it. So he said, it, we find it difficult to sell books when it has Sufi on it because there's such a propaganda against Sufism because there are exotic versions of or manifestations of Sufism out there that give Sufism a bad name. Look, in any field, there's going to be degenerated forms. Of, uh, de- there's going to be degenerated forms. It's just Sufism is more prone to abuse as opposed to jurisprudence, or as opposed to. Tafsir, for that matter Even tafsir is prone I mean you've got Feminists writing tafsir today Saying that all the men Who've written tafsir beforehand They've all been biased against women So now we shouldn't read Any male uh, written tafsirs Which are pretty much All the tafsirs written of the past Right And we need to have new tafsirs So everything is open to abuse now, because you've got some exotic Sufis that do some strange things here and there, everybody's painted with the same brush. However, in his time, and for basically 1,200 years, 1,300 years, except the last, until the early part of the last century, and only now, alhamdulillah, things are picking up again, right? There's, there's never been a problem. It was, in fact, Sufism was popular. In some countries, it's still popular. Today here, people ask you, what madhab are you, brother? Right, Hanafi, Shafi, Salafi, Hanbali, whatever I, you know, whatever you are, right. I'm saying that as though Salafi is a madhab because it is a madhab. It's a fifth madhab, by the way, right? That's my research. Salafism is a fifth madhab, right? And I say this very clearly because it is. It's nothing other than taqlid of another set of uh, scholars. It's nothing different than that, right? And there's nothing, you know, if if that, if they're clear about that, then that's fine. Anyway, to, to move on, if you go to Turkey today. They actually still ask you, which madhab and which tariqah are you? So now, he is writing this unapologetically about this. About the sawuf, Because, you know, it was a need of the time. And subhanAllah, there were people who uh, really appreciated this work, as I said. Now, just to finish off, I'm just going to quote a few of these passages, just to give you an understanding of what this book is about. So it starts off with some things that are easy to manage that are at, the, you know, at a, a basic level that everybody uh, will understand. So for example, he says, العلم إن الخشية فلك وإلا فعليك Now you'll probably appreciate this more if you understand Arabic, but because of Dana's translation, it does make it easy. He says, if fear is united with knowledge, then it is for you. If not then it is against you. So you can have all the knowledge of the deen that you want, but if you don't have fear in your heart of Allah, then you will even misuse and abuse that knowledge that you have and cut corners and give wrong fatwas or accept wrong fatwas and mislead people. But if you have fear, so fear is extremely important. So that's a kind of a general wisdom that he's providing for knowledge. Another one is, it gets a bit more complex, but it's still for the most part manageable for most people and he speaks at different levels now listen to this carefully he says this is uh, uh, the aphorism number 13 in his original collection um, but it's on page 95 here if anybody has this edition he says <laughs> Am Kayfa Yatmau, a Yedkula Hadratalahi, Wahu Alam Yattahur, Min Janabati Gafalati. Am Kayfa Yarju, a Yafhamadakaical Asrari, Wahu Alam Yatub, Min Hafawati. So he's speaking on many different levels, but let's see. How can the heart be illumined while the forms of creatures are reflected in its mirror? How can the heart be illumined when the forms of creatures are illumined in its mirror, are, are uh, reflected in its mirror? How can the heart be illuminated by the nur of Allah if the reflections in our heart is for property, is for a car, is for a particular individual, or is for something else of the dunya that we love and that, that's consumed our heart? Then how can the nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enter our heart? Then he says, Or how can it journey to Allah while shackled by its passions? If our desires of the world are so strong for good clothing, branded, you know, it has to be branded for the next phone or for whatever it may be. So we are basically shackled and fettered and chained down by these shahawat. They won't allow us to get close to Allah in this spiritual path. So that's what he says. Then he says, or how can it desire, and subhanAllah, this one is frightening. Because he says, "How can it desire to enter the presence of Allah while it has not yet purified itself of the stain of its forgetfulness?" What that means is, in our masjids today, we've dedicated at we've dedicated our pra- places of prayer as a masjid. The only thing that tells us that a place is a masjid is the fact that we've designated it as such. We generally put a mihrab up there, a pulpit, and it has mats that face the qibla that's what it is now anybody who sees that and if they're unclean they're going to feel that i can't go into this place women with menstruation will not be able to go in a masjid likewise men who are in a seminally defiled state they're not allowed to go into a masjid somebody who's come in really dirty smelly sweaty you're going to say brother you know this is not the place for you you know let's get washed up because we're told to avoid now that's a place we've designated And we have this law that we apply to ourselves can you imagine the court of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala how are our hearts which are dirty for of forgetfulness impure which are submerged in their darkness of sins how are they going to find a place in this pure court of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if unclean people impure people are not allowed to come into the masjid in this world so Look where he takes us from and look where he is taking us to. That's, that's the secret of this work. It's the beauty in which he discusses these things. And then finally he says, which is on a very high level, he says, Oh, how can it understand the subtle points of mysteries while it has not yet repented of its offenses? That's on a very high tasawuf level. How can it understand the higher realms? of the secrets that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would open up to them and give them the haqa'iq and the realities of things if a person has not repented of its offenses. One of my most famous quotes from this book is this, which has so much hope, but it does it in a way that you can't abuse the hope that he gives you. Listen to this carefully, he says, "La saghirata, idha adluhu." وَلَا كَبِيرَةَ إِذَا وَاجَهَكَ فَضْلُهُ That's it. لَا صَغِيرَةَ إِذَا قَابَلَكَ فضل عدله وَلَا كَبِيرَةَ إِذَا وَاجَهَكَ فَضْلُهُ There is no minor sin. There is no minor sin when His justice confronts you. And there is no major sin when His grace confronts you. Now just think over that for a while. It's self-explanatory, but it just needs a bit of thought. Basically what he's saying is, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts to deal with us with justice, for everything we've done wrong, whether it be minor or major, then does it matter that it's minor? Because when it's about justice, then He has the right to punish us even for minor sins. Then we can't just pass off sins. Oh, that's just Makrutan tanzihi. That's just a minor sin. This is just a minor problem. So when it comes to justice, then even a minor sin would become a major sin. When you look at it from that perspective. However, A person has committed many major sins. They're worried now. So then he says, there is no major sin when His grace confronts you. So if He's going to deal with us with His grace because of a simple, single deed that He may have liked of ours, which we tried and we had all sincerity, then even our major sins will suddenly become nothing because His grace is not to be diminished and not to be considered small. It will overcome any major sin. Just... Two more. He says, إِذَا وَقَعَ مِنكَ ذَنْبٌ فَلَا سَبَبًا لِيَأْسِكَ مِن حُصُولِ الْإِسْتِقَامَةِ مَعْ رَبِّكَ فَقَدْ يَكُونُ ذَلِكَ آخِرَ ذَنْبٍ قُدِّرَ He says, when you commit a sin, let it not be a reason for your despairing of attaining to righteousness before your Lord. For that might be the last decreed for you. Now what that means is something very simple. He He says that, you know, many of us, we have a sin that we commit over and over. We do tawbah over and over, but we go back to committing it. Eventually, what shaitan puts in our mind is that there's no point making tawbah because you've done it so many times and you've still committed the sin. And you've reneged on your your repentance. So then he gives hope and he says that when you do commit a sin again, don't let that be a reason for your despairing that you will never attain istiqamah, that you will never become strong and, and steadfast. Because this sin that you've just committed, if you make tawbah now, it may be the last one that you'll ever commit in your life. So he's giving us hope. And the commentary will just explain that. I, we don't have much time, that's why I'm not reading much of the commentary. And the final one that I want to uh, quote to you is, this is on a higher level. See, what this book will do is it will first just reveal the realities of uh, the path to us and the realities just of our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then it will open up better ways of worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it will refine our worship. Now this one is extremely refining. It changes your perspective about why you should be worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what you think when you worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, لَا تَطْلُبْ عِوَضًا عَنْ عَمَلٍ لَسْتَ لَهُ فَاعِلًا يَكْفِي مِنَ لَكَ Do not seek recompense for a deed whose doer was not you. Do not look for reward for a deed whose doer was not you in reality. It suffices you as recompense for the deed that he accepts it. Now what is he saying there? He's saying here, so this is the commentary. It should be understood that Allah is the true doer of all actions. The fact that you are here today, the fact that you can follow your deen and make salat, and another person cannot, that's from Allah. It's no accomplishment on our part. We should just take that out of our mind. Generally, if we've been able to wake up for tahajjud one night, or we've been to an Islamic program, you know, and we've never been, we think, wow, man, I did a lot today. This is telling you, Allah did it. So get it right. And you know what, if, you start, if we start thinking that Allah is behind everything, then He'll do much more for us because we would have understood the reality. So this is the kind of reality He takes us to. So He says, it should be understood that Allah is the true doer of all actions. Therefore, in worship, the servant's gaze should be on Allah Most High, not on Himself. He should understand that Allah Most High has created the act of worship in Him, and that is Allah's favor. Since the servant is not the creator of his good deeds... It is highly improper for him to desire compensation think i want jannat for this i want jannah. you didn't even do it allah made you do it so why are you asking for jannah? of course allah that's his excuse he's going to make us do an act and give us jannah for it anyway for anybody he loves he's going to give him jannah. so don't worry about that don't 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 get deceived by that fact it's just a a point of uh, uh, just to refine our understanding of it so then he says therefore if a servant has only the pursuit of reward Of some kind of reward Then sincerity, full sincerity will be negated You won't have full sincerity In fact the servant deserves to be apprehended on this fact And punished for it Sincerity is that I do something for Allah Just to make him happy Because I'm his servant He gave me this world And he told me what to do and that's what I want to do. And that's all I'm required to do. And of course, we know from Allah's promises that He will give us great rewards. So khalas, let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the sincerity. And that's why He says in another place, al suwarun, suwarun That actions are merely just forms. They're just external forms. What makes them real, what makes them accepted is the fact that you have ikhlas in those actions and a feeling and a concentration and a devotion in those actions. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us a tawfiq. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring us closer to Him and give us a better understanding of Him and uh, worshipping Him. And may Allah refer, uh, refine our worship of Him. wa Da'wana.